Great to see you all. Thanks for coming down. If you're new, an especially warm welcome to you. It's great to have you with us this Sunday afternoon. If you're joining us for the first time, you meet us probably around about two-thirds of the way through a series that we've been doing in the book of 1 Peter, which we've entitled A Living Hope. And we've, uh, yeah, we're on to chapter four, as Andy read for us a little bit earlier on. In 2004, a computer scientist by the name of Ray Kurzweil wrote a book called Fantastic Voyage, um, and it had a little subheading underneath the title which says, well, it asks the question, will you live long enough to live forever? I confess I haven't read any part of this book, so I can't really recommend it to you, but I did watch an interview with the author talking about it. And as far as I can work out the premise of this book, uh, Mr. Kurzweil reckons that around about 2045, computer technology will have advanced so much that it will be able to learn every single nuance of our biological makeup and effectively eliminate all disease. I promise you I'm not making that up. Google it, honestly. Now, this this is an admirable endeavor, granted. I'm not criticizing his ambition or or even his his ability, you know, I'm absolutely no doubt that Ray Kurzweil is far cleverer than I could ever hope to be. But at the same time, I can tell him now it ain't going to (laughs) happen. He's wasting his time. You know, no offense to you if you bought the book, but if you did, I'd suggest taking it down the Sally Army, to be honest. But one thing Mr. Kurzweil has highlighted is the uneasy relationship mankind has with its mortality doesn't sit right with us, does it? You know, the fact that we're all going to die somehow feels wrong. You know, something C.S. Lewis explores in a lot of his books, really interestingly. This idea that it, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. You know, deep down, we all feel that in some way, I think. But ultimately, our mortality is a fact that we cannot ignore. Uh, and because we're human beings with emotions and self-awareness, We have to find some way to process this information, don't we? We have to try and find some way to deal with it, to make it make sense. It's one of the things that separates us from animals, isn't it? You know, you won't see a giraffe musing on its mortality or considering the meaning of life. You know, as human beings, we are fated to have to consider the fact that our existence is very, very fragile. And if we can't solve the problem of our our mortality by using science, then we have to find some other way of dealing with it, don't we? We have to find some meaning in it. There's lots and lots of ways that we do this. Um, For centuries, different cultures, different people groups have had different ways of trying to deal with death. The Mexicans, they like to celebrate it. They have their Day of the Dead in in November every year. which is, yeah, maybe a slightly strange approach, but for for the rest of us, we have an absolute a la carte menu of ideas in our culture to try and help us deal with the fact that we are mortal. I've picked out a few few notable ones that came to my mind. See if any of this, any of these ones hit home. Um, first one, quite popular, I would say, is just to try not to think about it too much. Um, you know, drown yourself in a cocktail of Botox and anti-aging products if you think it'll help. 
and trying to cling on to your youth for as long as you possibly can. You're as young as you feel, aren't you? The expression. So the expression goes. Um, another one which was massively popular in the ancient world was to focus all your time and energy on how you'll be remembered after you're gone. And try and build something of a legacy for yourself. Now, ancient kings and emperors would conquer and build monuments. And in doing that, the thinking was that they gained some kind of immortal, godlike status. And they, they took great pleasure in the idea that they could continue to exist in the memory of those that would come after them. Another one is a kind of optimistic, fingers crossed sort of approach to the afterlife. Um, this idea that, you know, if I, if I recycle my milk bottles and try not to stab anyone, then there's probably a comfy cloud waiting up there for me somewhere. And it'll all basically work out in the end. You know, so best not to worry too much. What we believe is true, as Ronan Keating once told us. That was a shameful 90s reference, I'm sorry. Um, but there's one more, which we're going to look at in a little bit more detail in a little bit. It's probably the most popular in and amongst our society, I would say. And not only for us, but evidently this was a popular way of thinking in Peter's day as well. And that's the idea that we're not here for two minutes. So devote every bit of energy you have to maximize your pleasure and enjoyment. Because if you don't, then you've wasted your life. You know, my, my social media is bombarded with this stuff. I'm sick to death of Andrew Tate appearing on my feed telling me if I don't own four Ferraris, then somehow I'm not living to my potential. You know, the world tells us to make as much money as we possibly can. It tells us to go on as many holidays as you can cram in. It tells us to make yourself as attractive as possible because attractiveness equals value. It tells us to have experiences to indulge ourselves in our sexual freedom, to experiment with things, get busy living or get busy dying. And these types of activity have been society's definition of living for a long, long time. And to deny yourself maximum pleasure is the ultimate sin for a lot of people. Because life is slipping through your fingers. So take as much of it for yourself as you possibly can. Well, I think at least one aspect of this Peter would agree with. And that's the idea that life is short. We're not here for long. I'll just pop the text back up behind me. Skip on to verse 7. Right at the beginning, we see a sentence that I think is quite key to understanding not only this chapter, but probably quite a lot of 1 Peter as a whole. The end of all things is near. Sounds a bit archaic, doesn't it? Sounds a bit doom and gloom. You know, we know that Peter had a flair for the dramatic, you know, and we know that when the mood took him, he wasn't shy of saying difficult things, things that people didn't want to hear. If you think back to his sermon at Pentecost in Acts, where Peter confidently tells the crowds that they were responsible for the death of Jesus. He doesn't pull his punches. But he can't really afford to in this letter because he's driven by urgency. You see this, this kind of thing all throughout the book of 1 Peter. You see phrases like, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. All flesh is like grass. Passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. He uses this straight-talking language 
because he knows what's coming. He's got no time to mince his words. Now, Ash has referenced for us in a, a few times in this series, in earlier talks, of this ragtag bunch of people that Peter is addressing, dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. Now, he's talked to us already about the suffering and the persecution that they've undergone, but also about what might be to come for them in the immediate future. Now, I don't need to spell out for you how bad things got for Christians under the Emperor Nero. You can read up on it later if the mood takes you, but it's believed Peter was writing just prior to this great persecution. Maybe he had half an idea of what was coming. We don't know. But either through persecution and execution, through natural causes, or Jesus coming back, Peter knew this group he was writing to might not be around for that much longer. But as we're going to see as we consider this chapter, Peter has very much his own take on the idea of YOLO. You know, and if Peter is preaching the truth, it's one we'd do well to adopt ourselves. So with this in mind, let's head back to the beginning of this chapter and see what Peter has to say. First one. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in his body has finished with sin. Now, a few talks back, um, Paul Howell pointed out to us that the insertion of chapters in the Bible can sometimes throw you off the narrative a little bit and be a little bit misleading. Albeit they're very necessary, you'd get lost without them, you need them for reference. But Paul drew our attention to the phrase, in the same way, which links chapter 2 to chapter 3. And here again at the beginning of chapter 4, we have another therefore, which a clever guy called Craig Keener suggests could more accurately be translated in light of this. So we can safely assume that whatever Peter is going to say in chapter 4 is going to be informed by what he's just said at the end of chapter 3. So in light of what, what did he say? Well, if you take a step back and look at the book of 1 Peter as a whole, as Ash has been encouraging us to do, you begin to see this kind of undulating narrative of Peter giving, he gives these big weighty gospel truths, then followed immediately by practical advice on how we're supposed to live in response to the, the truths that he's been talking about. So chapter 1, for instance, we have a living hope and a precious inheritance in Jesus. Therefore, be holy. Chapter 2, we're a royal priesthood. We're a chosen people elected by God. Therefore, be submissive to emperors, husbands, masters, for the sake of the gospel. And here now, at the end of chapter 3, moving into chapter 4, we have in 3 verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sin the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Therefore, in light of this, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in his body is finished with sin. Now, what on earth does that mean? So right off the bat, it's probably worth explaining that when Peter says whoever suffers in his body is done with sin, he does not mean that suffering is some kind of tool that you can use to purge the sin out of yourself. 
And some pretty grisly self-harm has been committed over the centuries when this verse has been taken the wrong way. Even the great Martin Luther, apparently, used to try and whip the sin out of himself. I promise you, if you try that, you will be left with just as much sin at the end as when you started. You'll just have a sore back. So what does Peter mean? Since Christ suffered in his body or in this way. In what way? Back to 3 verse 18 again. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He suffered once for sins. Clearly refers to Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus' ultimate suffering was his death. And he knew it was coming. He acknowledged it regularly in the Gospels. He had to suffer and die. And Jesus resolved to live a certain way because he knew he only had a limited time on this earth. This is the type of mindset that Peter's telling us to take on. The end of all things is at hand. But if we die with faith in Christ, then the suffering of death will liberate us from our sin. So rather than trying to whip the sin out of yourself like medieval monks used to do, it's Jesus' wounds that will ultimately free us from our sinful bondage. So another way to read this verse, which might be helpful, I hope it'll be helpful, might help illustrate what I'm saying. So you could read this verse as, Therefore, since Christ suffered and died, arm yourselves with the same attitude that you are also going to suffer and die. But ultimately, that's a good thing, because if you suffer in your body and die, ultimately one day you will be finished with sin. Sin has ultimately been defeated at the cross through Jesus, but you won't see the fulfillment of that till after you die. Arm yourselves with the same mindset because your time is short. Jesus had to adopt this mindset. Three years, all his ministry lasted before he was crucified and he had to make the most of the time that he was given. So what does make in the most of your time look like, according to Peter? Verse 2, paraphrasing a tad. Do not live the rest of your earthly life for evil human desire, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Yeah, we said he doesn't pull his punches, didn't we? Um, this is pretty much Peter at his most blunt and controversial, but not for the reason you might immediately think. Now, we've already seen what our culture describes as living. You know, some of the things on that list would make the cut, I would suggest. Now, evidently, people in Peter's day thought something similar to us. They liked a good drink. They like to indulge their sexuality. They like to party. What Peter's trying to do is to draw a distinction between two different responses to the fact that life is short. In light of the fact that we're all going to die, Peter says, follow Jesus' example and live for the will of God. Our culture says, Peter's culture said, since we're all going to die, live for yourself, have a good time. I would argue that Peter's emphasis here isn't to try and make you go teetotal. No, he isn't trying to ban parties, per se. 
depending on what kind of party they are, obviously. But, you know, let's be clear. I'm not, I'm not saying it's okay for you to start going and getting into orgies and drunken lustfulness and all that, but I just don't want us to get hung up on that list that grabs your attention and miss the point of what Peter's really trying to say. Peter's argument here isn't principally a moral one, I don't think. It's the fact that given our limited time on this earth, indulging yourself in this way is just a criminal waste of time when you consider what's to come. Now, don't think if you stay clear of this list, you're, you're golden, you're in the clear. You, know, you might think, oh, I've never been to an orgy in my life, so I can switch off at this point. It's not how it works. <laughs> you could substitute the drunkenness and the illicit activity on that list for just about anything. You know, watercolor painting, mending cars, social media, don't matter what it is, if you devote your life to that thing and make it your reason for living, Peter says you're wasting a golden opportunity and what you were ultimately created for. You missed the point of life. Look at how Peter prefixes the start of verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. You've spent your life devoted to these things and now your time's running out even more. And the gospel's definition of a life well lived is one devoted to the will of God, Peter says. The secular definition or the pagan definition, as Peter calls it, is one devoted to yourself and whatever desires take your fancy. To evil human desires, as he calls it. But that list is exhaustive. Yeah, the point is at the beginning of verse 2. How are you going to live the rest of your earthly life? What are you going to do? Is it going to be for human desire, your own desire, or for the will of God? Moving on, verse 4. They are surprised that, they do not, that you do not join them in reckless, wild living as they heap abuse on you. So Peter's predicting here that these two worldviews will ultimately cause friction between each other. The people that like to indulge themselves will be surprised at first when the people who want to live for God don't want to get involved and after a bit they'll resort to abuse. Now it's true that Christianity cops a lot of criticism and ridicule for its views on sexuality and ethics and morality. But in fairness, I don't think the church has always covered itself in glory when passing judgment on people who live hedonistic lifestyles either. Now we can be equally culpable as a church when it comes to missing the point of the gospel in pursuit of moral correctness. Ultimately, if this life is all there is, no one has the right to tell anyone that one way of living is better than another. If this is all there is, you can't be under any obligation to anything or anyone, can you? I completely understand the point of view of these pagans who wanted to devote themselves to drunken lustfulness. I completely understand the view of our culture that says, take what you can while you can. If the meaning of our existence is confined to the few years we spend on this rock. But that's not Peter's take on it. The whole language of 1 Peter is laced with an eternal perspective. It's written with heaven in mind. Now, that's why he refers to his readers as sojourners and exiles, you know, just passing through. It's why he tells them to be sober-minded and alert. It's why it's a criminal waste of your life 
to worship temporal pleasure. Pleasure seeking in and of itself is something that we were wired to do. But unfortunately, our fallen condition means we're just prone to look for it in the wrong places, in places where we can't find the fulfillment that we're looking for. And as you skip on to verse 5, you see when, when we have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, the end of it all, the tragedy for those that dedicated themselves to their own desire will be what they missed out on. Think of bullseye. Remember bullseye back in the day. Here's what you could have won. Yeah? I couldn't think of a better illustration than that. I'm sorry. Our conduct in this life is rooted in the pleasure to come. Not necessarily the pleasure that we can experience right now. There's a very famous phrase written in something called the Westminster Catechism, which is a document written hundreds of years ago uh, to try and like, explain the point of the Christian faith. And right at the very beginning, the first sentence states that the chief purpose of human beings is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is why you should follow Peter's advice and devote yourself to God's will. Enjoying yourself isn't wrong or immoral. Quite the opposite. We were made to seek enjoyment in its ultimate form, which is God himself. And then Peter, later on in verse 6, draws their attention to some people who are already there experiencing it. Perhaps he's, he's trying to use it as motivation. Believers who have died and are living according to God in regard to the Spirit experiencing that beautiful joy that will come to all of us if we believe the gospel which has been preached, as we see at the start of verse 6. Moving on, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sin. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So Peter wants to make clear to us that the something better is fast approaching. And from verse 7 onwards, he expands on kind of what he said in verse 2 about what living a life devoted to God actually looks like. He's talked about what it doesn't look like. And now he's going to move on to what it does look like. Typical of Peter, we get this kind of short series of punchy one-liners he wasn't a learned man, wasn't an educated man, wasn't given to flamboyance, as we know. And as we've seen, he ain't got time to mess about. So he's straight to the point. Be alert, sober-minded, love one another deeply, offer hospitality, don't whinge about it either. Use your gifts, keep your speech godly. Now, on the surface of it, that seems quite a random collection of rules. Um, but again, remember the context. Remember that the time is short. Remember who he's writing to. And it starts to make a little more sense, I think. And one thing I think that's really clear from what Peter is saying here is that the unity of Christians in this uncertain time is absolutely vital. The last thing his readers need at this juncture is to become divided, bogged down, sidetracked. You know, we know that there's nothing that would derail a church or a group of believers, like a petty squabble or a falling out or people being inhospitable. 
to each other. I think this is the context that he's speaking in when he says, love one another deeply, for love covers over a multitude of sin. Even if someone sins against you, for the sake of gospel unity, for the sake of finishing the final lap, getting to the end, your love is going to have to cover it for now. Too much at stake for you to start harboring grudges. Paul talked to us a few weeks ago about Peter's attitude towards slaves and wives and husbands and how Peter's instruction was given in light of an imperfect system and an imperfect world. I think this verse is along those lines as well. In an ideal world, your love shouldn't have to cover over a multitude of sin. Ideally, the sin just shouldn't happen in the first place. But the world's messed up and it's going to happen. So your love is going to have to do for now while you're so close to the end for the sake of unity. I thought of another naff illustration for this, so please forgive me. But again, I couldn't think of a better one. Um, so when I was a kid, I used to spend a lot of time building like card towers. I had a riveting childhood. Um, and you know what it's like when you're building card towers? The bottom row is always dead easy, isn't it? Because you can put cards in between the layers to make them stable. So your bottom row is nice and stable. But the higher up you go, the less stability you have until you get right to the top and you put in the last one on like that and you've got nothing to go on top of it. It's the most unstable bit and it's always at that point that the whole thing comes crashing down and you put your foot through the wall. Peter's saying here, I don't, I don't want the tower to fall down on the last card. I don't want the church to break apart right at the end when you're so nearly finished. So cover each other's sins with love. It's going to take a deep love to be able to do this, not a superficial love. Peter knows the effort it's going to take to summon up the love to forgive someone who sins against you. And I'm sure if his readers had the chance to argue this point with Peter, he would point them to the deep love of Christ, which he displayed when he covered all our sin by his death and resurrection. And I'm sure he would suggest this as a good source of motivation. Reading through this text made me think a little bit of Hebrews 12, verse 1, a famous verse, one a lot of you will be familiar with. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I think what Peter's describing is almost a practical outworking of that. Sin is going to try and tangle you up. It's going to try and keep you from finishing the race. So love one another deeply. I think verse 9 works along those lines a little bit as well. Offer hospitality without grumbling. Joyful hospitality requires selflessness. It requires an understanding of the bigger picture. And this selflessness will promote unity. Unity is going to keep them steadfast to the end. Finally, verse 10. Thank you for sticking with me. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides 
so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. So continuing on this theme of selfless unity, Peter encourages his readers to use their gifts to serve each other. But a gift, by definition, is something you've received without merit. It's not something you earn. And Peter uses an interesting phrase to describe his readers here. He calls them stewards of God's grace. Craig Keener, again, has an interesting take on this idea of a steward. He reckons that steward in this context carries responsibility similar to that of a servant or a slave managing a rich person's household on their behalf. It's an important job, but they don't actually own anything. It was all done on behalf of the master of the house. All the responsibility they carry has been given to them by somebody else. Don't know if anyone's ever seen the film Django Unchained, a story about American slavery in the 19th century. And in this film, there's a character called Stephen, played by Samuel L. Jackson. And he's one of the most despicable, horrible villains you've ever seen committed to film. And one of the things that makes him so horrible is the fact that he's a slave himself, but he's given this position of managing a rich plantation on behalf of the owner. And in this position, he's just horrendous to his fellow slaves. Could he use this position to try and help slaves less fortunate, but instead he tortures them, he insults them, and he ultimately sides with the white slavers over his own people. And at no point in the duration of this film does he ever acknowledge he is himself a slave. And at no point does he ever acknowledge that he's just been lucky to get this position of responsibility. And I think that's partly what Peter wants to avoid in these verses. He wants the people to serve each other and use their gifts, but only in God's strength so that God may be praised. Verse 11. People have to acknowledge the source of their strength in gifting and praise God for it got to understand that they are stewards and they didn't earn the responsibility that's been given to them but rather than God being some evil slave driver once the people realize this they hopefully should be liberated remember the context the huge might of the Roman Empire is out to get these people they must feel so weak and vulnerable but God is going to give them the strength to serve They've been given the honor and responsibility of speaking the words of God. How confident should this have made them and how inspired to praise and give glory to God. Even Jesus had to do this. He tells us many, many times in the Gospels, he doesn't speak on his own authority and his father has empowered him to carry out his will. He deferred to the will and strength of his father on so many occasions. God's will for us to serve others in his strength. But crucially for us, it was God's will for Jesus to serve us by dying in our place and making it a possibility for us to serve and enjoy God. It's God's will to crush him so that we could have hope. So just as we finish then, let's, let's just recap where we've been. The end of all things is near. For all of us, whether we like it or not, 
despite what Mr. Kurzweil would have you believe. So don't waste your life in pleasure that fades, but work for the pleasure that's eternal. And let's work towards that by being unified, by helping each other, and by using the gifts that he's given us. And let's never forget where our strength comes from and how fortunate we are to be given the privilege of serving. But above all, let's praise him and glorify him for giving us hope. Spent a lot of time banging on about death tonight. I'm sorry about that. The world's a scary place, isn't it? It was scary, evidently, for the people reading 1 Peter. It's, it's not a lot less scary today. Jesus fretted over his impending death in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he was raised to life, which means that we can be confident. And just as I finish, I just want to leave you with a verse from John 16, when Jesus is trying to stop his disciples, including Peter, from worrying. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world.